Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It's been just a joy to be with you and share with you. Um, my wife and I were talking about it this morning. It's humbling, extremely humbling, to know to know that you can be used of God, mm. and God takes what you give and multiplies it. Amen. And we just rejoice in that. It's been so good to talk to so many of you. I'm sorry that some of you I don't remember from conferences where I met you, <laughs> but uh, we're just uh, delighted to be here. Recently uh, on Moody Proclaim, Dr. Michael Easley, the president of Moody Bible Institute, did a series on why we believe what we believe. And uh, I like that title. It's a great series. In fact, we ordered the CDs. Um, I have, through the years, encountered countless people who are pre-trip. Uh, I used to golf with a number of pastors from Grand Rapids. Uh, and uh, when, after taking this position and teaching it, only one of them, about six of them, has ever talked to me since. And just ignore me. Uh, because when they did talk to me, I put them in a corner and they didn't like that. <laughs> and they put them in a corner biblically. Amen. Um, I've asked the question, why do you believe what you believe? And without question, without question, the number one answer is, that's what I've been taught. That's right. That's right. It's the number one answer. That's what I've been taught. I remember a pastor <coughs> calling me. I didn't put any influence on him at all. He was in another state. Uh, but I did send him the book, The Sign. He said, I stayed up all night reading it. So the more I read, the angrier I got. He said, why don't you get angry? He said, because I've been deceived. I That's right. And, uh, that pastor went on to take the pre-rep position. Now pastor is a very successful church in northern Illinois. It happens to be my son, Steve. But I could, I could repeat that over and over again. Let me draw your attention, and this has been alluded to a number of times, to a verse of scripture in Acts chapter 17. The apostle Paul was in Thessalonica and certainly experienced some duress there. And it says, by night he came to Berea. And in verse 11, they, it said, verse 10, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. And verse 11 said, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. It's an interesting statement. And then he tells why. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Here's the apostle Paul teaching they're still examining the scriptures to see if it's so. That's the bottom line, if you will, in understanding what God has for us is, is the word of God. The sign, the book The Sign was published in uh, July of 1992. And uh, Robert Van Campen, being the perfectionist that he was, uh, read it and didn't like it. <laughs> He says it's got a lot of redundancy in it. I told him I could have told you that before you published it. And uh, 
there were some things he wanted to state different, so we did an expanded edition. And at that time, he challenged me to write a study guide. I expected uh, the study guide might sell two or three thousand. It's sold well over thirty thousand uh, for the expanded edition. Then uh, somebody suggested to Bob that he write a shorter version just dealing with the rapture. And thus the rapture question answered plain and simple. Let me give you a little background on that. There's a famous pre-trib book from back in the 70s written by Dr. John Walder, simply entitled The Rapture Question. And Bob picked up on that. Now, he had published the sign with Crossway, but he's now living in Grand Haven, Michigan. And as you know, some of the major Christian publishing houses are in Grand Rapids, one of them being Baker. So he contacted Baker, and Mr. Baker and all the executives came over. We had lunch, about five or six of them, uh, with uh, the folks from Baker, and they wholeheartedly agreed to publish uh, this book. And they suggested to Bob that they that he use a lady who was a professional writer. She was a freelance. She worked freelance writer. She worked with Baker. And they said if you use her, she'll teach you exactly how to do this. So if you've read one of the two early editions of the sign, and then you read the rapture question answered plain and simple, you see there's quite a difference in the way they're written. The, the, the rapture question, I always give people the rapture question and answer plain and simple first. Because it's it's easy to read, it flows, yes. it's logical, it just, well Bob, being a brilliant person, didn't take him long to pick up on how to do that. Now he's in another dilemma. We gotta get the sign in this kind of language. <laughs> and that was the reason for the next edition of the sign, the one with the blue cover. Because Bob wanted it Bob wanted you to have that edition where it was easy to read, where it flowed. And if you compare the two, you'll notice quite a difference in the way they read. Same content. Um, we learned a lesson. We, we appreciate all the help, perhaps even some of you in this room gave us. Uh, people would call with things that they saw. I remember Bob sent the final uh, uh, manuscript of the the sign, the last one that came out, to uh, to Crossway, and he called me. And Bob was not a golfer for some reason. He said, "Roger, let's go golfing." And uh, he he was just wanted to. He'd been really immersed in this thing, and so I said, "Sure, let's go." And while I was waiting for he and his sons son-in-laws to pick me up, the phone rang. I don't remember the man's name, but I remember he was a pastor from Pasadena, Texas. And he said, have you ever considered this? It dealt with the word Bozrah in the, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, the hiding place for the Jews. And he gave us some real insight. Well, when Bob arrived, I went out in the car and I said, Bob, you're not going to believe this. And I shared it with him. And he said, stop. We got to call. We got to call Crossway. <laughs> that was the last edition that was, was put in from that conversation. And we thought, well, we've got this thing nailed now. I mean, we've been through it three times. Uh, I've been immersed in it. I read those notes. I almost memorized the sign. You know, I really, really went through it and through it. Had just countless discussions with Bob on it. The new book was out one week. 
we got a call from a dear lady in New York State who told us there was an error in it. <laughs> and she was right. And we made a point of the fact that there's only one book without error. That's right. That's no matter how hard you try, we still have the flesh. We don't have the clear understanding yet that we will have. And we're prone to error. Yes. I learned through that to be more tolerant of people who don't agree with me. <laughs> you know, we're all in a process. We're all growing. Uh, our pastor up in Michigan always says, used to say, he always says, we're all wired differently. And we are. And God takes those gifts that he's given us and used them, but we've got to recognize we're all part of the family of God. We're in this together. And we've got to be ready and eager to search the scriptures yes. to see if these things are so. One of the interesting things that happened uh, in the process uh, was uh, we got a, I got a call from Dave Hunt. How many are you familiar with that name? Written a lot of books, you know. I didn't know Dave Hunt. I knew about him. I had read most of his books. I enjoyed the way he writes. He was obviously very much pre-trib. And uh, I invited him to come and spend a day with Bob Van Camp and myself, and he did. And uh, we had a great day. Now, I, I didn't, we didn't convert him to pre-rod, uh, but we had some great discussions. He had a couple of questions. Um, I wrote him a letter, and I said, if I may, let me share with you just on a couple of issues concerning the pre-rod coming of Christ. Concerning the times being like they were in Noah's day at the coming of Christ, where according to Matthew 24, 36 to 39, there seems to be a sense of normalcy. Check out Genesis 6, 11 through 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy uh, them with the earth. Things must be pretty bad for God to destroy all mankind except Noah and his family. And yet, through it all, people adjust and go on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. So even under the persecution of Antichrist, whose major efforts are against Israel and the church, it certainly seems as though the earth will be filled with violence, just as it was in Noah's day. Yes, that's right. well, he responded to me in a short email and said... Uh, I can't, it, he simply said this, Roger, I can't argue with that. <laughs> because look at the world we live in today. It is filled with violence. We lived in western Michigan for years. I pastored uh, three different churches in western Michigan over the years. One in Kalamazoo. Yes, there really is a Kalamazoo. And uh, one in Muskegon and one in Zeeland, Michigan. Zeeland, Michigan is the most Dutch town in all of America. <laughs> In Zealand, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. <laughs> it took some adjusting, but uh, God was gracious, and uh, uh, we had great ministry there. But we listened to the TV stations from Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids is the second largest city in Michigan, Detroit being the largest. Uh, Michigan is a state that's uh, divided by Highway 27. It was right up the middle of the state. Uh, the eastern part of the state is very liberal. The western part of the state is very conservative. Unfortunately, more people live in the eastern part than the, the western part. Uh, but uh, 
uh, we listened to the Grand Rapids TV stations, and every morning we'd hear about the shootings and the violence. Now we move to the Bible Belt, and we listen to the Nashville, Tennessee stations, and every morning we hear about the shooting and the violence. The world is filled with violence. I remember as a boy moving to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and traveling all over Milwaukee on my bicycle, riding 20 miles out the Wind Lake, putting up a pump tent, going fishing, staying overnight, and my folks never had to worry me about me at all. I was 12, 11, 12 years old. Wouldn't do that today. The world is growing more violent, more violent, because the world is turning from God. And that's, that's the issue today in our whole political realm. We look at the world, how are we going to fix the world? Now, you're not going to fix the Middle East. Yeah. Only the Prince of Peace is going to fix the Middle East. And uh, the issues, I believe, deal more with the killing of the unborn and the disruption of God's plan for marriage and those biblical issues that we as believers ought to be standing for. Let God take care of the rest of it. Um, I could preach in here, and I, won't, I don't want to do that. But uh, <laughs> you understand you, you understand that we live in a violent world today. You know, there there is no question in my mind that the United States of America is going to be hit again by terrorists in the coming years, if not soon, sooner. You know, it, it's going to happen because we live in that kind of a violent world, and God destroyed the world because of violence. Um, some weeks, some months after Dave Hunt was with us, um, I got a phone call from a pastor who's pre-wrath. And he said, I was at a conference that Dave Hunt spoke at. I said, yes. And he said, somebody got up and began railing on the pre-wrath position. And Dave Hunt stood up and said, listen, don't dispute that position until you understand it clearly. Yes, that's right. And I really appreciated that. I really appreciated that. Um, as I mentioned last night, we came up with the idea of putting an 800 number and a, an address in the, the back of the, uh, the sign. And uh, that was a stroke of genius and only of God because our whole ministry was built around that. We, uh, Charles and I did do some conferences where we went to hotels and, and uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, the church ministry, all the churches that we went to, and to me, they're, they're mixed up in my mind, I went to so many, uh, were all requested because of the phone number and the address in the back of the book. I remember one night driving to Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I was tired. I'd been on the road a lot, and I was home, and I thought, I'm not going to fly down there. I'll just drive to Columbus. Columbus is not my favorite city in the world since I'm a Michigan Wolverine fan through and through, and the Buckeyes are headquartered in Columbus, and I've always tried to figure out what a Buckeye is anyway. And, uh, but I drove down there, and I was, I was busy, and I didn't get there until about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. I hadn't stopped to get something to eat, and I was starved. And I said to myself, hey, I know this little restaurant that's open all night. 
and it's good. I'm going to go there and get something to eat. I went out and for 45 minutes looked for that restaurant. I could not find it. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> That's what happens when you travel a lot. <laughs> but uh, we, we uh, as a result of that telephone address, telephone number in the back of the book, some unusual things happened. A brother down here that worked as a prison chaplain with the prisoners. Uh, a man who I'm flying out next Wednesday to Boston to work with. Uh, he's, there's a big book fair. I'm going to work a book fair with him. He says, I'll pay all your expenses when you come and help me. I met him in the mid-90s in Concord, New Hampshire. He was in prison. Now, this guy is about six foot, seven inches tall, long hair, ex-biker, okay, outlaw biker. Tough guy, okay? A little fella by the name of Maurice Vincent, who in... God's sovereignty, not only went into the prison, Maurice, when I say a little fellow, he's a little French fellow, he was probably about five feet, three inches tall, didn't weigh 150 pounds, he was just a little thin guy, went into prison and led this fellow to Christ. Maurice Vincent had also read the sign, and he was adamantly pre-wrapped. And Maurice called me and wanted to, if I could come to Somerset, New Hampshire and do a conference. Go, you know, let's go. <laughs> so we went. Before that, this fellow, his name was David, he was in prison. He sent us a letter at the sign, and he said, I found your address in the back of the book. He said a guard was reading the book. He was sitting on a chair outside my cell, and I asked him if I could look at it. He let he against the rules, he let me look at it. <laughs> and he said, I'm intrigued. He said, if you have a copy that's damaged or whatever. He said, I don't have any money, but he said, I'd really like to have one. So I took the letter to Bob McCamp and I said, Bob, look at this. And Bob said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, any person in prison who requests a book, we'll send it to him free. Yes. Okay. Now, we never announced that. You'll never find that in any of our literature. We sent David a book. The last weeks of the sign ministry when it was still in Michigan, we were sending out Charles, 80 to 100 books a week wow. to prisoners all over the country, both men and women. It gets in the grapevine, oh, and yeah. it was just going out there. I did how many uh, seminars in prisons? You're talking about a captive audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go in, I remember going to Coldwater, Michigan, a big prison in Michigan, and doing a seminar, and I went on for about two and a half hours, and I said, well, we've probably gone long enough on a quit, and they said, no, 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 keep going. Now, I, I don't know whether they were enjoying beer, just enjoying being there in the room with each other, but it, it, God used that avenue to reach into the lives of people, and uh, it was just one of those ways that God opened doors. I never planned on an overseas ministry. Uh, frankly, I'd never been overseas. I'd been uh, to Mexico and Canada. That was about the extent of my foreign travel. And I think Canada was over the, took a little trolley over the Canadian line at the Sault Ste. Marie in northern Michigan, and that was about the extent of it. But we began to hear from pastors 
And I had met two men from India who were training at a mission station in North Carolina. And uh, an uncle who lived in Atlanta, still lives there, got to know him. And he called me one day and he said, uh, Stephen and David would like to have you come to Hyderabad, Skunderbad, India, and teach on end times. Would you be willing to come? I'll go with you. And so I went. That was my first trip to India. Uh, the reception was unbelievable. Uh, now, Charles and I have done a lot of seminars. We open up the questions at the end. We got so that rarely did we hear a question that we hadn't heard before, and we had a lot of fun with that. First few times it was a little scary for us, but after that it, it, it became it became a good time. Charles, you heard Charles last night. You, you know what? You know, I mean, this guy's a deep thinker, and and you know what he'd do to me? Somebody would ask a really difficult question, and he'd say, "Well, sure, we've got the answer to that." Go ahead, Roger, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, in India, they were like sponges. I mean, they just soaked it up. And uh, I had an interesting time over there. I came back and I told my wife uh, what had happened. I said, "You go down. You, in, in, the, the cities are not geographically large, but Sikandarabad, Hyderabad together have about five million people, and they're just wall-to-wall -wall people. I mean, I remember sitting in a hotel room. I was on the second floor." And watching people go by, it's like a river. You know, it just never ends. Just are, just full of people. And we were downtown in Hyderabad. I was with uh, uh, the, the, my friend who went with me. And uh, being the size that I am, most of the Indian people are smaller. You know, most of them are shorter people. There are a few that are tall, but most are shorter. And uh, they kept coming up to me and touching me. He said, they think you're a god and they want to touch you. <laughs> well, then I get out to the meeting and the meeting's got a huge sign up in front, welcome the Reverend Dr. Roger Best. <laughs> and so I went home and I told my wife, I said, you know, it's really interesting in India, they call me doctor and they think I'm God. And she says, honey, you're home now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then we began to get uh, more requests. And it, it is unusual. The book, the sign, got to India through all different kinds of sources. Yeah. Supporters here in America, uh, a lady in Denver, Colorado, another lady in Robbinsville, North Carolina, people from all over the country sending the book to pastors in India. Now, in India, if you're educated, Remember, India was under the British Empire at one time. If you're educated, you speak English. So it's not difficult to get around in India because a lot of people speak English. The majority do not because the majority are not educated. But uh, a lot of people speak English. And uh, so the pastors were educated and they could read the book. Well, all of a sudden, I'm getting these letters from pastors in India. Nisop, India, Hyderabad, India. Bangalore, Cochin, all these cities in India, wanting me to come and teach this. Well, I put it together. I thought it was going to take a month. I mentioned it last night. And I scheduled it all with these pastors, wrote to them, and we did a month of meetings in India. 
most difficult month of my life. Now, I'm, when it comes to food, well, there isn't much I don't like. <laughs> That's a problem for me at my age. <laughs> I've never seen a donut I didn't like. <laughs> and, uh, and yet when I got to India, the thing that turned me off was the conditions health-wise are so bad. My friend Joe went with me. I told you about that last night. and The ice cream was good. And so we were eating ice cream, and about halfway through, we read an article in the paper about how filth, under what filthy conditions ice cream was made in India while well, it cut out the ice cream. My friend Joe, he he loves hot food, and the spice the food is spicy in India, so he became my designated eater. I think I lost 20 pounds in a month. I mean, I just picked away at food. Remember uh, doing a seminar in Bangalore? We did two in Bangalore, one with... Uh, Dr. Ramesh Kumar, uh, Kumar and his family. Kumar, by the way, in India is a name like Jones or Johnson here in America. It's one of the most popular names. Uh, Dr. Kumar has Shalom Baptist Church, Shalom Baptist uh, Seminary, a college and seminary, so Shalom Baptist Orphanage. I mean, he has quite a ministry and uh, does it on a shoestring. I don't know how they do it. They've got about 150 kids in the orphanage who all, they just, they have one kid. When the first time I went there, he was about 11 years old. He had memorized the entire book of Psalms. Wow. I went back some years later. He had not only memorized the entire book of Psalms, but the entire book of Proverbs and the Gospel of John. And could stand up and you'd say, Psalm 57. He'd rattle it off just in his uh, language. Uh, but uh, just there we taught the Word of God. Wherever you go in India, Kids surround you. We got off an airplane at one airport. I forget which city it was, and there was a cute little girl. She came up to Joe and she put her hand up and put her hand to her mouth. That's what they do, wanting something. And he had some uh, money and he gave it to her Indian money and in rupees. And he gave her a little bit, like that. There's 50 kids around. I don't know where they came from. I mean, they just surrounded him. Uh, the poverty over there is just, and, and the sadness on the face, face of the people. One of the pastors told me, and you realize that the Indian people who come to America, they own businesses. You go to a hospital and there'll be doctors who are Indian. They're not stupid people. But Dr. Kumar told me, he said, the reason that India is in the condition that it is, is it's under the curse a demonic religion, Hinduism. That's right. I mean, I saw people parading around a big tree worshiping. Uh, they worship everything. I mean, they even worship a big, tall, ugly white guy. I mean, you know, <laughs> everything they worship is God. They have no hope, and that curse is upon their country. Well, I had the privilege of going to Nasik, uh, India. Nasik, India is the second most holy city in India. And the uh, river runs through that. It's not the Ganges. The Ganges over in the eastern part. This uh, Nasik is about, um, oh, in our, the way we would travel about a two and a half hour trip north of Bombay, which is now Mumbai. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't have an airport. Six million people live in Nasik. Uh, along the river, there are Hindu shrines from little shrines to huge buildings, just all over. When we were there, 
we uh, went down to the river, and up at the river they were washing trucks in the river, and farther down where all the Hindu shrines were, the Hindus, the Indian people, naked, nude, were in the river, throwing water on them to try, this dirt, filthy water, trying to cleanse their sins. I mean, there's no hope. There's no hope. There's over a billion people live in India, and about 1% claim to be Christian. But boy, are they on fire for God. They have to be. For them, it's not a convenience. The problem with the church in America, Christianity has become a convenience. We have preferences. We don't have convictions. Bob always used to say to me, Roger, you're willing to die for that? That's conviction. That's conviction. Nasik, India is where David Livingston spent a number of years. And I had the opportunity to do a seminar in the church that David Livingston built in 1849. Just quite an experience. It was an Anglican church. And to my surprise, these old Anglican priests, I guess they call them, uh, in their robes and everything, came to me and said, would you preach Sunday morning in our service? Well, I did, and I guarantee you, they'd never heard anything like that before. Uh, but God blessed the opportunities that open. I've been back to India a number of times since then. Uh, we began to get other calls. Charles and I went to England, and uh, that was an experience. We met with an organization of churches and the pastors of an organization of churches in London. Bob and Campen had purchased as an investment a castle, Hampton Court of Herefordshire, which is out south west of Birmingham. And uh, we were going to go out to the castle and spend the night. And so Charles was driving. That's an experience, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he was going to, we were near a place called Paddington Station, I remember that. And he was going to get us out to the motorway that took us to Birmingham to go to Herefordshire. And about two hours later, I said to Charles, you know, we've been by here before. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about a congested city. You know, in America, most of our city streets run east and west and north and south, not in London. They go every which way. And uh, we got out to the castle, a 15th century castle, 16 bedrooms, something like that, Charles, huge place. And uh, Charles and I spent the night there. We were the only two in the castle. Oh, no. <laughs> I went to that bedroom and I thought, who slept here before? <laughs> but through that conference with those pastors, we made some great contacts. And I went back and did some conferences in churches. Most of the churches small. I've got an email from uh, the past just got an email recently from the, one of the pastors whose wife was struggling with cancer. She has recently passed away, and we had a great time with him. And then we did a conference in the association's largest church, which was in Tunbridge Wells, which is south and uh, east of London, over towards the Channel. And uh, it was the most bombed city by the Nazis in World War II in the British Isles. And to meet with those people who had experienced that was, was a blessing, but the openness again was unreal. They just soaked it up, and we had a great, great time with them in, in England. And you know, my, my only uh, 
concern, I guess my biggest concern is at my age, I'm just not able to handle that kind of traveling anymore. You know, to go to India, it takes somewhere between 32 and 36 hours. Yes. And that's the other side of the world. And that's a lot of time in airports like in Amsterdam and places like that. And uh, boy, by the time you get there, you're, you're whipped. It's interesting, in God's protection, he, uh, I never lost a piece of luggage. <laughs> never got in any trouble except once. I took my wife along. I'm not blaming her, but for the time for trouble to start, that was it. I worked with a travel agent who, this was before our organization was larger, so we did this in-house. Uh, it was a Christian, and uh, uh, she was out of Aurora, Illinois, and she helped. She did a great job for me, and she set up a hotel room. We, we flew into Bombay about midnight, and we didn't fly out until about 11 o'clock the next morning. So she set up the hotel. She said they'll have a van. So we got off the airplane, got into the parking lot at Mumbai, Bombay. You talk about total chaos. It is unbelievable. I mean, just total chaos. Uh, you wouldn't believe it. You have to experience it. And uh, we're looking around. I got this big cart full of baggage and can't find it. There's all kinds of vans. So a guy comes up to me and said, who are you looking for? I told him the name of the hotel. He said, well, that's us. Oh, great. Yeah. So he takes us to a van, loads our stuff in the back of the van, and away we go. Well, we found out that the travel agent had made a mistake. She got us a hotel, not near the major airport, but a, a near a smaller airport in northern Bombay. So we had quite a ways to go. They took us down a back alley, and I ended up, uh, they robbed us is what happened. Oh. Uh, and uh, uh, they dropped us off at the hotel real fast, and the doorman came out, and I said, grab this guy, because I'd, like I'd like to give him a little punishment. <laughs> I was upset with him. And uh, I, I, talked him, I, I talked him out of it. I him, he got $100 from me. Uh, Could have got a lot more, because I, I had that. But uh, it was the only experience. Uh, the next morning, we, now we, at night, you can't take a cab, because the cabs are small, and they put your luggage on the top of a cab. And when they stop, thieves steal the luggage off the top of the cab. You, you'll learn that real quick. I mean, I've heard the horror stories. So you've got to take a van where they can put it inside. So in the daytime, you can take a cab. So we got a cab. I paid $100 to go from the airport to the hotel at night. And the next morning, I paid $1.35 to the cab driver to get back to the airport. <laughs> so, but that was the only experience. And God protected us through it all. Uh, I must tell you that on that trip, I was getting sick before I left, and I had the flu, uh, and I was not feeling at all well when we got there. We flew into Bangalore to the Kumars, and Dr. Kumar says, well, I'll take you to the hospital. And I oh boy, another big bill, you know. So he takes me to the hospital that treats uh, the, the orphans where he takes them. And uh, you go in, it's, it's unreal. It's like chain link fences, and you go through these chain link gates, and I go up to a counter, and it's chain link with a little opening in it, and I talk to the gal there, and she gives me a side turn around, and there's a guard, and he opens this big chain link fence, and I go down the hallway and into this room, and it's like going back in time. I'm like in the 1930s. I go in, I sit down at a table, and three doctors are on the other side of the table, there's all these old beds there, and old hospital beds, and I told them what was wrong, I said, hurt me in the chest, and 
I just, I really felt sick. And so they examined me on the bed. The doctor said, well, I want to do an EKG. And I, all I'm thinking was dollar signs, you know. And so I said, okay. So they brought out the original EKG machine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, did an EKG. And uh, when they were all through, I went back to, they gave me a prescription. And by the way, in India, you don't need prescriptions to buy drugs. They give you a prescription so the, the, you know what to get. Give the prescription to the pharmacist, he gets you the drug, gives you the prescription back. Uh, that was nice because my wife started to get sick and she took the prescription and got some, some stuff and, and it kept her well. But uh, I went to pay and there was so many rupees and you know I'd just gotten there and I was sick and uh, you know this whole exchange rate thing. And So uh, I get in the car and I'm figuring and I said to Dr. Kumar, was that all the bill was? And he said, yeah, that's what they charge. In American money, it was $2.65. Wow. I said, no wonder you people are poor. Wow. <laughs> but you know, it, I, just, I share some of that with you to share with you how God protected and cared for us as we traveled. He's sovereign. Um, I, uh, I got a lot of letters from people overseas. I remember corresponding a number of times with a dear brother from Ireland, uh, the home of my ancestors, and uh, just thrilled with what he was reading and sending material. Um, then I was asked, uh, I, was, I met a man when I pastored in California uh, who was of Chinese descent, and we kind of became friends. And he was friends with, uh, and he, after I got into this pre-wrath, uh, uh, I sent him a book, and he loved it. And he had a friend who was the president of Praise Incorporated. Praise Incorporated is located in Manila, in the Philippines, and it is a distributor of Christian music throughout the parties, CDs, uh, all kinds of music. Okay, that's, that's what they do. He read the book and loved it and said, we've got to put on a conference, and called me and, and asked me to come. So I went to Manila. And uh, he uh, had set up a one-day conference with Southern Baptist pastors, about a hundred of them. And then he uh, set up a conference the next two days at a Christian Missionary Alliance church with an auditorium that seated about a thousand. And uh, we did the conference with the Southern Baptist, and it went well. And then we did the conference in the Christian Missionary Alliance church. It was I was all alone on that trip. There's no air conditioning. It's about 100 outside. By Saturday afternoon, I don't know what I told them. <laughs> I mean, I was out of it totally. I mean, I was just exhausted, but I got through it, and I just prayed that God would use it. Now, two interesting things happened. When I traveled overseas and did these kind of seminars, I just I said, Lord, how am I going to handle this if they want me to speak in their churches? And so I just came up with the idea, well, the first one who asked me, I'll go there. Okay, well, first one that asked me, if I'm going to be there for the weekend, the first one that asked me. So this man came up and said, I'd like to have you, said, I'm chairman of the board of this church, and I'd like to have you speak at our church. So I said, okay, fine. He said, we'll pick you up. Arrangements are made. Well, Praise Incorporated had a young lady who uh, was of Chinese descent as well, and she uh, was their international sales manager. And she had a brother who was a pastor. He was from Mindanao. He came up because she didn't feel it was right for me, for her to be traveling with me alone. I thought, boy, there's some, some uh, real uh, good thinking. And uh, so her brother came. 
Now, her brother was the funniest little guy I ever met. Uh, you familiar with Fred Flintstone? This guy was Fred Flintstone in the flesh. I mean, he looked exactly like him. And he was funny, and uh, I've heard from him a number of times through the years, and he traveled with me. And so he was along when they picked me up to go to this church on Sunday morning. Uh, we went to the church, and we pulled up, and here's this little old dilapidated building, and I thought, oh, well, you know, court. It's a half a dozen or whatever. It's fine with me. So I started to put the steps, and the driver says, oh, no, 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 no. He says, go around back. Well, I run around back, and here's this huge metal building. It was air-conditioned. I mean, you could look right through the ceiling. There were places where there were holes. <laughs> it was a huge building. And uh, that's where the church met. Well, I know where you are doctrinally, but I grew up in a rather conservative uh, setting. And uh, we, the, my pastor friend and I, were sitting on the front row, and we're there early, and over on the side there's some groups meeting like for prayer. And they start laughing and laughing, and then they start barking like dogs. And my friend spokesman said, should we be here? <laughs> and I said, well, there's no limits on what we can do, so we're going to do it. And uh, uh, it must have been over 1,000 people there that morning. And I, uh, for some reason, you know, some mornings, pastors, you'll understand this, some mornings you kind of work through things and just say, Lord, give me strength. And other mornings you get up there and you just can't wait. To, and that's how I felt that morning. I mean, I was just fired up. And I preached on the second coming of Christ and the fact that we're going to have to face persecution and we need to be prepared for it and we need to live godly in this present world. In fact, that's the passage I used in Titus 2, 11, 12, 13. And uh, I finished the message and the pastor got up and I would never forget his first, he's a big, tall fellow. His first words were, wow. We've never heard preaching on the second coming like that. Pastor, I want to have lunch with you. <laughs> and it was just a great experience. Again, how God worked and opened That's doors right. as, we, as we traveled. Uh, this was published. I, I had a uh, friend, Alan, publish this. Is Alan here this morning? Uh, you know, young Alan Kirshner, you'll see him around here. This guy's phenomenal. When he was, he was still in his teens, I think. But he contacted me and asked me if I would do a seminar at a church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Now, to me, that was home. I was born up in that country. I got a lot of relatives in that country. In fact, I had relatives who attended the seminar. And uh, I went. It was in a downtown church. It was, it was in the kind of poor part of downtown Eau Claire. By the way, Eau Claire is one of the, that Eau Claire, Wisconsin area is one of the most beautiful areas in, in the country. It's just a beautiful area, very hilly area. It's just a beautiful area. And uh, we did this, it was bad weather. I remember the weather was really bad. And we did this conference, and there was a lot of people there, probably three, 400 people. And we did this conference, they, they met in an old movie theater. And Alan set all of that up. And then a couple of years, and Alan kept contact with me. A couple of years later, I get a call from Alan. He said, I've got another church. They want you to come and do a conference. It was kind of out on the edge of Eau Claire. We went and had a great crowd for that. And then one of the last big conferences that Charles and I did together was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And we did it in a large hotel like this. We had a room, oh, four times as big as this, and just packed it up there. And it was all because God used Alan to bring that all together. And that's why Alan is so involved in the ministry today. And his heart is in it. And it's just amazing the way God used people. But I had Alan put this on the web page. I, I got this just a few months ago. I was in 
Manila in 1998. Okay? This is the letter I get. You know, I must insert this. So often when I get letters from foreign pastors, you know why I get letters? They want money. I mean, they think we are the richest people in the world. Uh, and compared to them, we are. <laughs> but uh, that, that's usually what comes. But listen to this. This is the entire letter. He said, Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm sending you this email to thank you for coming to the Philippines a few years, a couple of years ago and sharing us your position on the rapture of the church. I was one of the pastors who attended your lectures in two venues in Manila in 1998. I cannot, or 99, I can't recall the correct date. I left my things, lecture notes, and booklet you gave in Manila when I came back to Mindanao to start the Lord's work here. So I made an independent Bible study regarding such position, praying hard with my family and the Lord to take it uh, out of our hearts if it is not a right position or enlighten us more if it is. The more we dig the pages of the Bible, the more we are convinced the Lord, by the Lord that this is the strongest, most Bible-based position on the rapture and the end times. Yes. I am now preparing my lecture charts and other materials because I will invite, be inviting the local pastors in the area for a mini prophecy conference this month. Lord willing, it, it, Lord willing, it is a little difficult because the prevalent position here is pre-trip. We have even experienced already being put out of the camp because of this position that we finally embrace, firmly embrace. But by God's grace, we are not moved because we know that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Amen. To God be the glory. Once again, thank you for being a blessing to us. May the Lord continue to bless you and use you for his work. Truly yours in Christ, Brother Ronald Ormega. Isn't that great? Why just say Yeah, sure. What a, what a blessing to know that God continues to, to use it for his glory. Well, I can tell you a lot of stories. Let me finish with this one. Because this probably was the most exciting overseas trip I ever took. A, and I, I believe you pronounce it Montevideo, Montevideo, Uruguay. Now, Uruguay is a little country right down in the southern part of Brazil. It's right across the bay from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, I got a letter from a pastor in Spanish. Uh, thank God for my good brother, Bob Meyer. I sent it to him, and he translated it for me. And uh, he wanted me to come. And here's what happened. There was a man in his church who was an interior decorator. And he had been in New York City working with some people from Argentina who were in New York, moved to New York City from Argentina on, the, on their home. And he was staying in a hotel and he was bored to death. So he went to a used bookstore and he was into science fiction. And he saw this book, The Sign. And he thought, aha. <laughs> and he bought it. And he read it said he stayed up all night reading it, and he couldn't believe it. He went back to Uruguay, and he gave it to his pastor. Now his pastor, uh, his pastor could not speak English or read English, but by God's sovereign grace, there's a young lady in the church by the name of Victoria Pacan, Pacon. And Victoria was in college with a major in English. And for three weeks, she would come to the pastor's 
office for three hours every afternoon and read to him the sign in Spanish. And he wanted us to come. Now, Uruguay was a country started by the Chinese Masons, and they're atheistic. The big statues all over the country, the, all their stuff, you know. I mean, it was just, there was no churches. A country of four million people, two million of them live in the city. And this young pastor, who was led to the Lord by missionaries in the Philippines, got a burden for her. I didn't agree with his theology in every other area, in many areas, but we just had a delightful time. He's a brother of the Lord, and I just pray that the Lord will open his eyes as he has with the free wrath on some other things. But he was one of these fireballs. He bought an old movie theater. It seems like I've done a lot of conferences in old movie theaters, but he did an old, bought an old movie theater that seated 1,200 people. And started a church. He bought a large piece of property outside of town and built a camp, which was beautiful. He had a radio ministry and a television ministry and invited us to come down. And I remember going to Bob Van Campen with the letter. And Bob's response is, well, you're going, aren't you? Now, I'm trying to work out the details with the language barrier. And unfortunately, Bob passed away before we were able to get to Uruguay. Because we went in, in the beginning of 2000, and I took Bill Lee Warner and Gary Vatterklopp with me. Uh, he, Gary was new with the ministry. Bill had been with the ministry for some time. And uh, I met Bill. Some of you met Bill Lee Warner, now with the Lord. God took him home at a young age. But uh, I did two conferences in Bill's church in Haver, Montana. Now, if you don't know where Haver, Montana is, when I arrived there, I said, Bill, is this the end of the world? And he said, no, it's five miles north of town. <laughs> and it's right up on Highway 2, right in the center of, uh, of uh, Montana, along the Canadian border. And I was just impressed with this fellow. As a pastor, I always made it my point to hire assistant pastors who could do what I couldn't do. I don't want somebody who could do what I do. I want somebody gifted differently who could do what I couldn't do. And very frankly, uh, I'm much better before a group than I am one-on-one. -on -one. And Bill was just terrific one-on-one. -on -one. He was just one of these loving persons, you know. And uh, I won't, the, the story's long, but God in his sovereignty arranged for Bill to become part of the sign ministries. I remember Bill, Bill and his wife coming for the interview and I took them up to meet Bob Van Camp, and they sat down, and Bob said, well, you must be pretty good. And Bill looked at him like, you're kidding. <laughs> he said, well, if Roger brought you up here, you must be pretty good. Five minutes later, he was hired, and it did a terrific job for us. But Bill had pastored a small church, and he went with me to down there, and we did a meeting, a two-night meeting in a church in Buenos Aires first, and had a translator, a young man by the name of Christian, just a super guy, and uh, had a good meeting there, but it was just kind of, you know, and you got to learn some things. I had to talk with Bill. We have all kinds of sayings that don't, don't translate well. I told you a million times not to do that. <laughs> Bill said, well, he said, uh, I, I just got my ears lowered. They looked at him like, you got to be kidding, you know, wait. <laughs> 
he just made just got a haircut. <laughs> they didn't get that, and I had to straighten him out on that. Uh, but we went to. Uh, in fact, I spent one night till two o'clock in the morning telling Bill, "Your problem is you want to follow your notes." I said, "You know this stuff. Put your notes away and just tell them about it." That's right. And boy, it just changed the way he he was able to present. I love Bill with all my heart. Unfortunately, I remember carrying him around when he cancer, brain tumor had just wilted him down to nothing, but uh, died at age 54, but had a great ministry with us. Well, he, he went along, and we went across to Uruguay, and the manager of the largest, I think it was a Marriott hotel in, in Montevideo, uh, right on the overlooking the bay, went to this church. So we had the suite. I mean, we, they really took care of us. And uh, while we were there, we were on television and radio every day, spoke out at the camp every day, and at night did a meeting. A church seated 1,200. There, they don't have the laws that we have here, so people sat down the aisles, they set up the steps to the platform, they were all over. And the pastor estimated that more than 2,000 attended every meeting for four nights. In fact, on Saturday night, we did a meeting at 5 o'clock and another one at 8 o'clock, and both of them were just packed. Now, you understand, I had a PowerPoint presentation. I have a PowerPoint presentation. We'll be uh, talking about that this afternoon as well. We, we, we use PowerPoint uh, so we can present all the charts and everything. Well, uh, you can't use PowerPoint when people don't speak English <laughs> and read English. And, you know, so you just have to preach. Well, the first night I spoke on, on the rapture, and I got 2,000 people. Bill said, Roger, I don't know what happened to you. He said, you really got wild. And I said, well, you can't talk to 2,000 people and go like this. You know, you got you to gotta get in and, and uh, uh, translate it into the message. Of course, you know, my dear brother, as I mentioned last night, who talked about preaching the book of Revelation and not uh, being the deadest time in his church, didn't understand what the book of Revelation is all about. Because when you talk about the coming of Christ and end times, what a challenge to come to Christ. That's right. And so... I would turn it over to the pastor, and the Christian would stand right behind me and whisper in my ear what the pastor was saying. And the pastor said something like this. And we're very crowded tonight, and we thank God for that. But we're not able to give an invitation where you can come forward to receive Christ. But he said, if God has spoken to your heart, he said, I'm going to ask you to stand where you are. He said, now don't stand because somebody next to you stands good. Only stand if God's speaking to your heart. We saw almost that. Thousand people come to Christ, and then he'd bring them into a room at the end and give them literature and things. You know, it ties right into the end times. When we left, this is the only time this ever happened. When we left, uh, uh, Victoria's father was our driver. I don't know what driving school he went to, but it was an experience too. <laughs> he had a big Hyundai. They'd just come off with a bigger Hyundai in 2000. And it had 22,000 miles on it. He couldn't figure out why the brakes were shot on it. I could. <laughs> and uh, he picked us up to take us to the airport. And he said, the pastor wants to see you. And we had had a glorious time. We got to the pastor and he said, now I know I talked to you. And he said, I know that all, all the honorary, they gave us a, a great love gift, more than I expected. And uh, he said, I know that goes back into the ministry, but we would like to do something just for you. 
They gave Bill and Gary and myself each an envelope. Gave me $500. And I thought, what a blessing. You know? To me, that was, the $500 didn't, you know, it was, it was important, but it didn't mean that much to me. What really meant to me that this man's heart had been moved by the yes. Spirit of God to dig into the Word of God and experience the truth of the Word of God. And that's what it's all about. As I start seminars, I always tell people, I am not here to twist your arm. Some of you heard me say this. I'm not here to twist your arm to believe what I believe. I'm here to challenge you to become a Berean and search the Scripture. That's right. Can you verify this biblically? And that's what excites me about the pre-wrath position. Because I can take you back to Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, Joel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and bring you right into Matthew 24, and 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, and 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians, into the book of the Revelation, and it all fits perfectly. Now, I don't have all the answers but I'll understand it better by and by. Amen. God bless you, and thank you for the opportunity of sharing with you.